Hello, I'm Mark Olson. And I'm Yvonne Villarreal. We're back with another episode of The Envelope, the LA Times podcast where we dive in deep with your favorite stars in TV and film. And Mark, you already know this from my Slack messages, but I'm very excited about today's guest. You know, she's best known for her scene-stealing work in both sitcoms and in films. And as I'm sure you know, as of late, she's become a TikTok sensation of sorts for the sheer volume of people imitating the unmistakable way that she can say something like, hi. Hi. How are you? Hi. Hi. I'm talking, of course, about Jennifer Coolidge. I'm excited for this conversation because I think Jennifer's one of those performers where we've seen her for so many years now, and yet she still is like revealing new parts of herself. You know, I think of the sort of absurdist energy that she brought to say Promising Young Woman, where of course there's her roles in the Christopher Guest films like A Mighty Wind or Best in Show, where she played this poodle owner who was married to a much, much older man. I love the films that come to mind for you versus the ones that come to mind for me. I go straight to her role as Fiona, Hilary Duff's evil stepmother in a Cinderella story. And of course, my personal favorite, Paulette, the lovable manicurist in Legally Blonde. I mean, that may be her signature role. Well, today, Jennifer joins us to talk about her performance as Tanya McQuad. 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 McQuad? McQuad, right? <laughs> Are you Ms. McQuad? Quad, one syllable. McQuad. Well, two syllables, but the second part is one syllable. Wad, McQuad. Is it Gaelic? I don't know. I really don't know. I just. Okay, it's Tanya McQuad in HBO's White Lotus. You know, this is a show that's got this amazing cast. There's Connie Britton, Jake Lacey, Natasha Rothwell. But so many people are talking about Jennifer's performance as Tanya. You know, she plays this extremely wealthy woman grieving the recent death of her mother. And she goes to this luxury resort with plans to spread her ashes, but ends up on this hilarious and weird and heartbreaking journey. I mean, she wrenches so much pathos out of just trying to get other people to pronounce her name correctly. It's one of the things that's so great about Jennifer's performance in White Lotus is that it has everything that we sort of know her for and like her for, but then there's this emotional aspect to it that like we've never really seen before. Yeah, I mean, what's so interesting is that Jennifer didn't end up in this role by accident. Her friend, Mike White, who's the creator, writer, and director of White Lotus, wrote this role with her in mind. And, you know, I would venture to say she delivered. It's been a revelation to see the level of vulnerability that she brings to a social satire, especially one that's sort of meant to depict the darker side of wealth. White Lotus, when I watched it, it was so clear to me how unaware rich people are of other people's suffering, but it, that it's not a conscious thing. Like, as sad as it is that, you know, a lot of wealthy people are just living off the grid in their world that isn't very real. Uh, it was the first time where I wasn't judgmental of them because it's just their all their self-centered fear and all their self-centered 
stuff really comes from the cocoon that they build, and it's all very unconscious. And so it made me sort of, I know this sounds weird, but sympathize. My mom passed away in June. I'm so sorry. Just dealing with all the logistics, you know, it it was just exhausting. And I'm still dealing with it. You know, you give a really layered and complex performance that is both hilarious and vulnerable, but particularly in scenes opposite Natasha Rothwell, who plays Belinda, the spa manager at the resort. Why do you think you're so tired? I think it's because I'm so close to the floor. Let's talk about that dynamic between them. Like, what fascinated you about their relationship between Tanya and Belinda? Tanya had been all over the world, and Tanya is incredibly wealthy, like has insane money. She's buying her happiness with at least travel and spas and massages. And, you know, and I feel like Tanya, out of all the characters in certain ways, had more empathy than any of them. I can't get rid of this, like, this this really empty feeling. I, I want, I want someone to figure it out for me. But, I, you know, I felt like, you know, she really did like Belinda a lot and wanted to help her and really thought, she was a genius because she'd, you know, been all over the world and had fancy treatments for everybody. And this woman had really figured something out and wanted to reward her for that and sort of set her up. But I liked that it was, she had really strong feelings for her, for Belinda, and was unable to fulfill all the incredibly generous ideas that she so wanted to make happen. Right. And this got caught up. I will drop the story. I will drop the story. And feel the newness of each moment. I feel the newness of each moment. Both you and Natasha are known for these outlandish, you know, larger-than-life performances in your comedy. But, like, both of you, too, in this show are going deeper in your performances. What was it like doing that with someone like Natasha? Like, how did she help you navigate those scenes and vice versa? I don't know if she and I discussed it that much, uh, but I do think in some weird way, I feel like the, you know, certainly for me, the isolation of COVID made it so much easier. And I don't know if I've ever had that advantage in my life where I was doing a job where all I had to do was the job. You know what I mean? I didn't have to juggle a bunch of other things. Like, the world really sort of came to a halt. You know, it was like nine months of isolation at my house and then leading up to just, you know, being in Hawaii, put in this bubble where you couldn't go outside the gates and you couldn't really go anywhere and you were just sort of forced to be your character. So now you see that's the core of the onion. I... Is that ready? <laughs> this is it. 
I'm just like a, I'm like a dead end, you know, that just has a trap door, and I think you should get out. Somehow it was the most pure environment I've ever been able to have on an acting job. Just to, for me, it was a, just a huge advantage. I don't know if I'll ever have that again. Hmm. I mean, I really struggled at the beginning of the pandemic. Like, it was really hard for me. Like, I thought everyone I loved was about to die. You know, I didn't know what to make of it. And it was just like anxiety all the time. Like, how was the early days of the pandemic for you? And then to go back, like you said, into a different kind of isolation, but one that was like not as gloom and doom. I feel like, you know, being locked up during COVID was sort of like an acid trip or something. It was some sort of weird... I felt like I had taken some really weird drug because all of these scenes in my life were being played out. And I wasn't taking any drugs. I was just eating a lot. I wasn't drinking, you know, I wasn't drinking. I just, I felt like each day was sort of like, I I was hallucinating because like my mother's death came up, all of these things. And I think it was just because, you know, I didn't really think we were going to survive the COVID thing. I mean, I really didn't. I just thought, you know, I thought it was just a matter of time before it got all of us. And I felt like the moment was just lingering outside. I think that's what it is. You got, I got so in touch with like what it would be like to exit the world and Hopefully all the people that I see again, if I did, you know, pass away. So it was all those thoughts. And so I think it really, for for a character that's sort of never recovered from someone's death, it was this perfect recipe for creating something. Well, you were just talking about grief. And there's a scene where you're giving a very uncomfortable yet painfully vulnerable eulogy for your dead mother during a boat ride with, you know, a bunch of strangers. She was a nymphomaniac. I'd walk in her room and I'd find all sorts of strange men in her bed. She had borderline personality disorder. She took her money and she manipulated people with it. She was cruel. Yeah, she was very, very cruel. She was so, so cruel. And uh, I, I just, oh, mother, 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 mother. It felt so real and spur of the moment. And I know the boat ride itself was a challenge for you. I think you got seasick. Um, what was it like? for you playing that scene? And like, did you do any improv during it? The actual monologue that Mike wrote, the actual eulogy was 100% written by Mike White. Oh my God, thank you. Yeah, no big deal. But the other parts on the boat, like, you know, all the throwing the ashes and things like the stuff I added while I was throwing the ashes, that was improv. Goodbye, mother. And I think people sort of saw how maybe that I was vulnerable and the reason why I was vulnerable was not actually my acting. 
it was because the people on the boat were very close to me. The boat was very small and all the actors were around me. They had nowhere to go. And I was throwing up into a bucket, like, you know, two inches away from everybody. And there was nothing I could do because I was so seasick. And what happened was oh it felt like, you know, I was having a gynecological exam in front of all the actors. You know, I mean, it was just so, wow. I've never felt more vulnerable because there was nothing I could do about it. I couldn't hide the, you know, vomiting. And so it, so I guess it sort of worked when I had to give the eulogy. It was just the same moment. I had to like throw up and then give the eulogy and then throw up again. And by that point, I guess I was like, well, you guys have seen it all. You guys have just seen everything. <laughs> uh, that was a really rough, really rough day. Oh, it sounds really rough. I mean, a huge... A huge part of why it resonated, like your depiction of grief, it just felt so raw. And you touched on this earlier, but tell me more about, you know, what you were drawing from when playing Tanya. I mean, I, mean, I think maybe COVID felt like round two of something that I experienced in my early 30s, which was, you know, the passing of my mother. It was very unexpected. She was diagnosed with... Uh, pancreatic cancer in like August or September and then was dead by by November. It was a very quick thing and you know it's just one of those things that happens in your life where you're like just completely I mean I just that was sort of beyond what my little brain could handle. I think it was just devastating and I think what was most devastating about it was just you know you're so I mean look not everybody in the world but I felt like I was so self-centered in my teenage years and my 20s and then you're just starting to like become a person in your 30s where you notice other people and you realize how cool your parents are and then my mother you know his life was just cut short and uh, yeah, it was very traumatic. I don't think I ever, you know, could really uh, recover from it. You know, I lost my father almost five years ago. And, you know, I definitely obviously went through a hard time. Much like Tanya, I had a complicated relationship with him. But it was interesting because, you know, I went through the hard time, but it was it did resurface during COVID in ways like I didn't see coming. And that's why I think I connected with the Tanya character, because like, I would just like cry out of nowhere for like, no reason in particular. But it was in like, thinking about my dad during COVID, it was just like all these weird, it was like I was processing it again, because I was thinking, who can I lose next kind of thing? Like, did you find that yeah. that was sort of going through your head in a way? Yes. I, for some reason, the COVID thing made it all feel very fresh. But, you know, I'm really sorry to hear that about your dad. No, I mean, I'm sorry to hear about your mom. It's like that thing of, I thought it would happen a lot later in life. You're never prepared, but yeah, it's life, I guess. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I think it's also too, like, because you feel like they're going to be around forever, I think what makes you the saddest is just the regrets that, you know, you're like, 
oh my God, I didn't fly back to Massachusetts for that Thanksgiving that I missed with, you know what I mean? Like you think you have like 30 more Thanksgivings with someone or 30 more, you know, summer vacations to have with your parents or whatever like this. And then you, then all of a sudden, you know, that's very clear that that's not going to happen. And, uh, and then it makes you angry at yourself and wishing you had been, been able to see the future, you know? Yeah. You know, I know, as you mentioned before, your mother died right before you landed your big gig on Seinfeld. And I know you've said like the last thing she said to you was, I can't believe it. And I'm sort of curious, like, what do you think she meant by that? And what do you think she'd have to say about the journey you've been on and the success that has happened since then? Well, I think... You know, she, my mother was lucky in love and had this amazing, amazing love affair with my father and was madly in love with him and he was in love with her and it was this great thing. But I think my mother's worry was that she wouldn't have any dreams outside of love, you know, because women back then didn't really, you know, it wasn't so career oriented. And I think my mother's fear was projecting onto me like, I mean, in other words, I think my mother was like, oh, my God. When she says, I can't believe it, I think she was thinking, you'll get to have the experience I won't be able to have. Jeffrey Rush, at the end of this movie, was it, I think it was called like Shine or something, where he's the pianist. And... I remember at the very end of the movie, he was sobbing, whatever. And I remember I was watching that when I was younger, and I remember thinking, like, how did he do that? How would you possibly be able to do that? And then what happens is COVID happens, and you're in Hawaii reliving your mother's death, and it all seems to be very easy. (laughs) I mean, you know what I mean? It wasn't, it was a time where we all had to feel our feelings and, uh, you can either completely block them out or you you really have to feel them. More with Jennifer Coolidge after the break. We're back. Here's the rest of my conversation with Jennifer Coolidge. We don't know much about you outside of the characters you usually play. And I'm, I've always been curious, like, can you tell me about the younger Jennifer Coolidge? Tell me about your childhood. Like, what, what were you like? I, don't know, I was kind of out to lunch, to be honest. I mean, <laughs> and I'm not exaggerating that. Like, I'm not just sort of, that's not my observation of that I was out to lunch. My parents were extremely worried about Mm -hmm. who I was because uh, I wasn't really present. I was always sort of like off in my head and staring out the window or not listening to what anyone was saying. I was sort of inside my own mind. And so my parents every year would, you know, since the age of like four or five, they would drive into Boston and um, have me tested. Huh. My... uh, 
my my bedroom was not far from the kitchen. I could hear my parents talking about me, and they were just like, oh, my God, what are we going to do? You know, what's going to become of her? I'm sad they're not alive because then they could sort of see that I, I've been able to <laughs> support myself. I mean, my father actually got to witness it. I've read in other interviews, you know, that before you made it in the arts, you described yourself in your 20s as being a mess. You were working at a restaurant in New York, but you hardly worked your shifts. Um, Tell me more about that time in your life. Well, those were the years that, like, you know, I was living in New York City and, like, you were, I was, like, telling people I was an actress, Mm -hmm. but... um, I was really a waitress. I, I've got very few jobs in my 20s. And, um, you know, I did little shows around town at little sort of little tiny theaters and stuff. But, yeah, I was a mess. I was sort of, uh, you know, going out every night and drinking and drugging in my 20s. And um, when I got to be 27, I um, ended up going into a drug rehab. And then uh, after that, sort of got my act together. Well, how how do you make sense of that time in your 20s, you know, looking back on it? Like, how did you pull yourself out of that? Like, what was your rock bottom? Well, I think, you know, if you're drinking, I don't know if you, like, figure out you're an alcoholic till later. Like, mm-hmm. in other words, like, drugs are in some weird way a gift because your addiction is sped up so quickly that, you know, you hit your bottom. And like I hit my bottom at 27. I was like at the bottom of the, um, but thank God for cocaine. It all came to a head at 27. And I, and that sort of went to rehab and then actually was able to like refocus my life. And in some some way my life became so simple. What sort of reflection happened in your time in rehab? Like, did you sort of set some goals for yourself while doing work on yourself in rehab? You know, in rehab, they told me I couldn't go out to clubs and I couldn't go out to bars anymore and all that stuff. And so there was like six or eight hours like added to my life every day. You know what I mean? Because that's what I was doing with all my time. And then you have to fill. And then you sort of do it with something constructive. I mean, what a concept. I know know a lot of people that that's how they live their life. But um, I didn't get that part. This is the weirdest thing. Like, you have these agents, like, don't give up on you. I felt bad for these agents I had. Because no matter how much I failed, they just keep submitting me for stuff. And um, they really should have just fired me. Hmm. I mean, was there a time you doubted whether you'd make it in the industry? I don't know. I think when you're an actress, you have to play all these tricks on yourself. And I don't know. I really didn't want to accept that thought of it not working out. And um, I don't know. I just think I, I think I really went into a very strong state of denial. Mm-hmm. Um, 
because it wasn't like I, you know, I'm like I said, I have all these friends. I have these amazing friends, really smart friends, and they're just so good at everything. Yeah, they're good at acting, but they're good at a million other things. They can, they can play the piano like nobody's business, and they're really smart, and they can like right. take beautiful photographs. And they're, I mean, some <laughs> of my friends are so gifted, and so those people are just racked with. I mean, they they just must be so confused all day, like which talent to pick from. And I think if you were going to say, like, Jennifer Coolidge, like, what is the greatest gift that you have going for you? And I would say it's just that my limited abilities mm -hmm. help me choose what I'm doing because I just didn't have options. I wasn't really good at other stuff. And, you know, I felt like the acting thing was my only real option. Hmm. Well, you've said publicly before that you wanted to be a dramatic actress like Meryl Streep. How did you find your way into comedy? Well, I was in this acting class uh, by this brilliant acting teacher named Julie Bavasso. She was uh, a great theater actress in New York City and played the mother in Saturday Night Fever with John Travolta hmm. and stuff. She was a brilliant character actress. And I was in her class, and there was this very cool group of people that were in her class, and we were all trying to be these dramatic actors. And there was this one really beautiful girl in the class, and she would always cry in her scenes, no matter what was going on. She would cry. And she was the most beautiful crier I've ever seen. Like, it was just very heartfelt, and she would sob and blow us all away in the class and everything. And and then I started to really resent her. Hmm. And then after class, we'd all go out to dinner. And then I started doing imitations of people doing their scenes and trying to make everybody laugh. And then one day, my friend, this guy, John Williams was his name. He said to me, you know, I think you're in the wrong class, Jennifer. And he said, I, I want to take you somewhere on Saturday I think it's where you belong, and I just want you to be willing to just take my advice. And he showed up and picked me up at my apartment and took me to the New York City version of The Groundlings, the Gotham City Improv, and he made me audition. And I got in, and then that just started a whole other thing. And he was right. I should have been doing that. I just didn't know that existed. Hmm. And that sort of was life-changing because... Uh, it was comedy. Didn't even occur to me to do comedy, ever. Did it feel more natural for you? Yes, and I thought I had a shot. And look, I mean, 30-something years later, you know, you talk about me sobbing in White Lotus, but at that point, when I was at that class, in Julie Bavasso's class, I don't think I could have shown any emotion, cried or anything. Mm. I think I was unable to tap into my emotions. And so comedy was sort of a great option for me. I had so many bad work experiences working in restaurants and stuff that I got to write all of my horrible experiences in a comedic way and perform <laughs> them on stage. And all these horrible bosses that I had that abused me, I was able to play them Wow. And I got, so it was just incredibly therapeutic. And um, that was so healthy. 
I mean, if someone was like really rotten to me, like, you know, sometimes I babysat for people that weren't nice to me or whatever. There's just nothing better than just to write the weird things that they say to you and just write it all down. And then like, you know, I'd love to go to the vintage stores and like put together an outfit that looked just like what they were wearing when they were talking to me, like, you know, and, and then you perform it and then you don't have any resentment because you've somehow gotten it all, you know, you, you, it's some sort of therapeutic release that you, I don't know, you, you get over it. Well, even in, in your comedic roles, you've played some, you know, incredibly iconic characters that have stolen the show. Obviously, American Pie comes to mind for your role as Stifler's mom. Like, how did you learn to distinguish yourself in those types of supporting roles? I mean, I think the way Stifler's mom was written had a lot to do with the success of that character, just because... You know, people talked about her throughout the movie and you don't really see her to the end, but it was sort of, there was a buildup. Mm. And I don't know, I feel like I could have looked like Fred Flintstone and people would be like, I love Stifler's mom because the buildup <laughs> was good. <laughs> well, I mean, knowing how talented you are and your abilities to play these really rich, complex characters, like I'm wondering for you, you know, having played, you know, supporting character after supporting character, like how did that shape what you felt you were capable of? Like, were you itching to be at the center? I mean, at the time we filmed Legally Blonde, I didn't ever wish that I was Elle. You know, I felt mm -hmm. like Reese was this very petite girl. And when I showed up for Legally Blonde 1, it was just so clear, like Reese knew the film business better than most people. She was like this very old, precocious person. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, she should have been Elle in the lead in running the show. I mean, she was really young and knew camera angles and where how things should be shot and how things should be handled. And so I didn't, I didn't want to be that. I liked that I was just like the best friend. But I do have to say... You know, after doing White Lotus, I feel like, oh, you know, this is a cool part. I got a, I, I, I mean, I got a really cool part, and um, you know, it didn't seem impossible to do that. And it was, you know, a pretty meaty part. So, but uh, yeah, I don't have any regrets. My only regret was just how long I entertained not doing that job. And um, I mean, I still wasn't well when we started that. And I actually, you know, and I almost, you know, of course, I almost blew it. And I didn't even take the job, you know, almost didn't take that job. And how bummed I would have been if I had stuck to my, you know, stupid way of thinking. But, you know, but I, I really didn't uh, want to do the job because I had eaten so many vegan pizzas over covid was it hard sort of getting out of your head about that? Yeah, I was just naively, I was just so naive when that phone call came in. Mike was like, oh, Jennifer, you know that thing I, you know, remember I told you about that script I was writing about the rich people on vacation? And I said, yeah. He said, well, HBO wants to do it. And then I was like, oh, oh, cool. 
yeah, I'm not doing that. <laughs> I mean, I didn't tell him that. I was just like, yeah, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing that. You were going to find a way out. I mean, I wasn't, no, it was just, it was very clear not to do it. It wasn't like I was debating to do it or anything. I was like, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to Hawaii. I'm not going like this. I mean, I'm out of shape and and not mentally in shape for a job. Mm-hmm. Well, since we're talking about White Lotus, I mean, it was recently announced that you'll be returning as Tanya for season two. Like, I'm, I'm wondering about your personal attachments to the character. Like, how do you hope she continues to evolve next season? Well, I hope she's less sad. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> no, and I hope, uh, I hope she has some love and sex and stuff. I hope she gets all kinds of, you know, male attention. <laughs> Me too. Do you think she reconnects with Belinda? I, you know, yuck, I was very sad when uh, I read that scene with Belinda and I really hope I get to make it up to her in some way. You know, Mike White, I remember saying like, really, do you have to do that, Mike? Do you really have to do that? And Mike (laughs) said, Jennifer, I'm not writing a fairy tale. I'm writing reality. Yeah. I mean, starting out in Hollywood or even like later in your career, have you had somebody that, you know, where it was empty promises? I don't think there's many women in this world that haven't had empty promises. But uh, I think I'm kind of gullible. So I think, Hmm. I don't know, I think, or wishful thinking. I think sometimes like maybe I'm more delusional. And so like I... I believe people more than right. I should, or I don't know. But you know, I think if you grow up in a small town and there's not a lot to obsess about in your childhood and stuff, I guess you have unrealistic dreams about romance. Mm-hmm. And I think my views of romance are unrealistic. I think a lot of stuff doesn't work out in this lifetime, and um. Look, I love it when you run into a couple and they're just madly in love and you find out they've been together for a really long time. And I just, I love those stories and I love to witness them firsthand. But there's a lot of other stories out there that aren't so good. And um, Mm -hmm. if you gave me the choice of either one, I prefer the one that works out. Yeah. But but I I don't know how you control that. I don't know how you... I don't think you can. I think you just, it's sort of a luck of the draw. But uh, I'm a, you know, hopeless romantic. And so I do hope that it is out there. I'm sure it is. And now more than ever, I want like 10 romantic comedies starring Jennifer Coolidge. So maybe we could get Mike White to write that, please. Um, But, you know, has the success of White Lotus like got you thinking about how you can continue broadening your horizons, either professionally or personally like has it just unlocked something in you has it i don't know if it's unlocked something in me but it's definitely uh i mean i feel like i'm the same person but what i do like is that doors that have been closed forever have opened and um actors that would never give me the time of day have reached out and i mean i don't want to get into the 
name dropping. Give me the names, you know, Jennifer. But but I do like, you know what I mean? Like when it's someone you really admire and then they come up to you and say, you know, I'd like to work with, work together, whatever. Like it's so fun because you're like, you know, uh, like I said, this White Lotus thing wasn't supposed to be anything really. I mean, I look, I think Mike White is a genius, but I didn't think it was going to be like this wave that, you know, you can ride for, you know, mm -hmm. this wave you can ride and like get these, you know, these opportunities that just keep showing up for just, and <laughs> my mind is blown. That's it from us here at The Envelope. I'm your host, Yvonne Villarreal. And I'm your other host, Mark Olson. If you haven't already, make sure to follow The Envelope wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review and recommend The Envelope to a friend. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode featuring Don't Look Up director Adam McKay. This episode was produced by Asal Isanapur. It was edited by Hiba Elorbani and our new executive producer, Jasmine Aguilera. Our engineer and composer is Mike Heflin. And special thanks to Shawnee Hilton, Clint Schaff, Richard Hernandez, Gabby Fernandez, Jeff Berkshire, Elena Howe, and Matt Brennan. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. <laughs>